Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, international best-selling author Mark Cameron has joined me in the interrogation room just to clear a few things up. Mark is a retired Chief Deputy U.S. Marshal, spent nearly 30 years in law enforcement, and held assignments in Alaska, Manhattan, Canada, Mexico, and dozens of points in between. He holds a second-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu and is a certified scuba diver and man-tracking instructor. The Jericho Quinn Thriller series became Mark's first New York Times bestsellers, and Mark's short stories have been featured in the Saturday Evening Post and Boys Life magazine. In late 2016, he was chosen to continue the Tom Clancy Jack Ryan Campus Thriller series, and the latest installment in that venture is Tom Clancy Oath of Office, which released in November 2018. And the next title, Code of Honor, launches to an internet near you in November 2019. The next Jericho Quinn title, which Mark's titled Active Measures, releases in late 2019 as well. Mark's just released a brand new series last February about Arliss Cutter, a veteran of the global war on terror and current U.S. Marshal working in Alaska. This first installment is called Open Carry. Thanks, Mark, for joining Writers on the Beat today. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, Gavin, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure. Now, I'm reading Open Carry right now, and it's been a, a great start to this new series. Um, for readers who are new to the series or new to you as an author, and especially Arliss as a protagonist, uh, what would you like them to know about this title and this character? You know, Arliss Cutter is a, is a character that's near and dear to me because of my background. He's a supervisory deputy U.S. marshal um, stationed in Alaska. I was the supervisor and then the chief here in Alaska, and so it's kind of writing about my home turf and mm-hmm. you know, they always say we, they always say, write what you know. And <laughs> yes, um, this has been a, a fun thing to take some of my, some of my uh, experiences and fugitives and tracking missions and things like that and spin them into much more interesting and violent escapades than I was ever involved in. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, use that in my, in my fiction, which has been fun and, and to write about something that, you you know from your background the, after you've done this for a certain number of years you kind of you kind of bleed blue and mm-hmm. writing yeah. about the the um, the agency and the men and women that I that I consider still my family has been uh, just great fun absolutely incredible fun yeah you know in in light of that I I guess this would be a good point for me to. Uh, humbly proclaim that I'm a little bit envious of your professional experience. I, I think I, uh, the most that I knew about the marshals before I started pushing a black and white bumper around the streets came from the movie Con Air, right? So yeah, yeah there you uh, go. No, after I moved over into narcotics, I sort of run into enough of your colleagues to realize they actually might have the greatest job in law enforcement. <laughs> well, um, I, yeah, I, I believe so. I think being a novelist is the second best job in the world. <laughs> For for listeners who are who are a little bit less familiar with the marshal service, can you kind of give them a, a, a glimpse into the day to day life of a marshal and kind of what the, the the role of that agency is? Sure, I, I like to kind of compare the people in the lower forty eight specifically, not so much here in Utah because we don't have county sheriffs, but in the lower forty eight, it's easy to describe a, a federal marshal or a United States marshal as the federal version of the county sheriff. So we, 
we are the enforcement arm of the Department of Justice where uh, people are always very familiar with the Federal Bureau of Investigation or the FBI they, the, who does the investigative, so, you know, so much of the premier investigation work for the federal government, particularly the Department of Justice. The United States Marshals is also a bureau within the Department of Justice that ultimately our director reports to an assistant attorney general. Um, we are an enforcement, more enforcement than investigative. So we do investigations, but on particularly, you know, focused things. But by and large, and by far, what we do is enforcement. In other words, if, uh, if any order comes off of the federal bench, we make sure that order is complied with. So if it's a order for uh, don't block, you know, access to this building or don't block people that are trying to go to work when you're when everybody's striking mm -hmm. uh, or let so-and-so go to school because of the color of his or her skin or get your butt to court because you're wanted <laughs> um, yeah. those orders that basically we take those pieces of paper that federal process and we are the muscle behind that so it was an incredibly fun job if you like dealing with people and hunting them down. Yeah. You know, and it seems like that would be the, the bulk of what you guys do is, is hunting down folks who, who have a reckoning coming and there's gotta yeah. be a lot of personal fulfillment in that. Yeah. That, you know, that's the sexiest part of the job. The mm -hmm. probably the number one, as far as important part of the job is protecting the judiciary. We make sure that judges yes. are able to, even though we're not part of the judicial branch, we interface with the judicial branch more than any other uh, law enforcement agency in the federal government because we, anytime a federal judge, a district court judge is, is threatened, then we do, do a investigation kind of hand in hand with the FBI. And then we handle the protective investigation and the protective operation, you know, a detail that goes along with that. And then um, in addition to that, we do um, protection for the Supreme Court justices whenever they're outside of the beltway. Um, you know, the Supreme Court police and um, handle them on grounds and other agencies handle that within the beltway, but we handle them when they leave the belt, the Capitol Beltway and are out traveling, then there'll be a, a detail of deputy U.S. Marshals with them uh, pretty much all the time. So we do a lot of protective work. We make it so the judges can do their job. And then we handle federal pri prisoners, moving them back and forth. We, you know, we contract out with state. We don't have our own jails, but we contract out. But by far, people get into the marshal service, at least the friends that I know and hang out with, because they want to be manhunters. Yes. Yeah, and you know that's the the guys that I interacted with in the in in the Phoenix area. That's you know the bulk of of what I knew them to do. Um, you know, going after guys, finding warrants, uh, guys that had you know bounced out of you know that that violated mm -hmm. bond, parole, probation somewhere, and fled to you know baby mama's house or, or mm -hmm. hiding out somewhere. You know, and it's. Um, it's like this uh, kind of cat mouse and where's Waldo game, right? Except, you know, yeah. it's just, you know, real life and danger at, at, at play. Um, you know, it, for my money, I, I think 
uh, aspiring authors who want to write cops and crimes thrillers, but don't necessarily have a background in law enforcement or forensics or homicide investigation, that making a, their protagonist a, a U.S. Marshal and a, a manhunter would kind of be a, a bit of an easier foray into the into the writing because of the the relatively limited scope of research that they would need to do, but there's still a whole lot of special information, uh, specialty skills that their character would have to have for someone kind of pursuing that avenue. What, what would you recommend that they, they learn in order to be able to write that character? That's a really good question. I think I talked to my, both of my sons were in law enforcement. My oldest was an OSI agent and for the air force and mm -hmm. he's, gone the medical school route now, but my youngest son is still a, a police officer in Anchorage. And I, I've talked to both of them in the past about not just, you know, fugitive hunting, because every, you know, as you know, from your background, every agency has their share of, of manhunting yes. they have to do. Mm -hmm. And I, it, law enforcement in general and, and fugitive hunting in particular boils down to the people business. You have to understand mm -hmm. people. You have to, it, it truly is like, hunting you know with a different end in sight but uh, you have to know your query you have to know who you're after you have to know what they think like you mm -hmm. so really a writer would need to know psychology and then we use you know it's not like the old posse days where we're although in alaska and rural places like you know arizona colorado places like that there's in idaho um and down on the border there still is some boots on the ground tracking um, mm -hmm. quite a bit up here in Alaska, but, but we use a lot of technical means as well. And some of that's classified and law enforcement sensitive and other things are out in the open and you can find out about them by a little research. But I mean, back in the day, I can talk about this freely because we don't use it anymore, but back when pagers were out, <laughs> I mean, you just, you just dated both of oh, us, Mark. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I, I said something to my son the other day. Why do you, did you get a teletype on the shooting? He goes, no, I didn't because this is not 1999. <laughs> um, what's a teletype dad. So, yeah. so back when pagers were, you know, all the rage and every doctor and detective and drug dealer had one on their belt. It was phenomenal because, you know, we might do a big snoop and poop operation to try to hook a GPS back in the day or some kind of tracker on somebody's car. But, once we had their pager number, we had, they basically had something hooked to themselves that we not so much could track them, you know, step by step, but we knew where they were calling, what uh, towers that we're attaching to and things like that. So it, it took a little more investigative, you know, it wasn't like having a satellite positioning system, but it certainly was a way to, to a technical means for us to use to, sort of zone in on people and, and build a, build a track of them. So, you know, people don't carry pagers much anymore, but that was it. So we, but we've just moved forward with that. And I mean, anybody that's at all familiar with technology we're using today can pretty much figure out what I'm mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I think that, um, you know, for the, the average reader, um, mo you know, most people aren't uh, as much as I advocate, you know, authenticity in writing, there's still an awful lot about our job that is you know, like one of my academy instructors said, right? It's like 98% mundane and boredom and 2% terror. Yeah. Um, so if you wrote truly authentic police procedure, 
people are going to put the book down after like day five at the desk. Right. You know? Oh um, yeah. I always used to joke that we, if I wrote a book about the marshals, it'd be some really tired guy <laughs> in court with drool all over his tie. <laughs> yeah. Trying to stay awake. Um, yeah. There, we, we had, I was personally involved in so many incredibly fun and, and interesting and kind of in your face and, and, sometimes violent things mm -hmm. dealt with some yeah. people that were just a really crummy people and really good people. But like you say, there's 98% just mundane kind of plotting mm -hmm. Even investigative part of it is very, it can be very plotting. So as writers, we have to encapsulate the exciting and sort of winnow out that other stuff and cut to the cut to the chase kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think too that um, you know, for somebody who's trying to trying to write a lot of this from the outside without you know having ever worn the the badge or felt the the burden of that or put yourself in in danger on behalf of someone else, you know, at the local level, people can get you know into like a citizens police academy. They can, I think, it's a lot easier to form local relationships with the local cops, local investigators. How would somebody? do that analogously with a federal agent or a marshal? You know, there's generally somebody that knows somebody. Uh, marshals are, are really, as a rule, we're pretty crummy at, at uh, <laughs> tooting our own horn, you know, as far as we don't, we're not in the paper enough. Mm -hmm. We don't, because of what we do, we don't generally like to talk about our escapades. Now we, we yes. trying to be better because that's the way you get, budget money to do your job and we're always doing more with less mm -hmm. where other federal agencies get you know gobs of money at certain times I, i'm not going to pick on the fbi here but they, but they sure yeah. get, you know they, they're they do an incredible job and i have lots of friends in the bureau but um they you know they have a lot more to uh play with and we kind of generally end up in the background, not getting as much funding and really, you know, we used to joke when I came aboard in, in 91 from local law enforcement, we, we always joked like, what was the old rental car? Number two, we're number or Hertz. We're number two. So <laughs> we try harder. And that was our, that was our mantra that, yeah. okay, we're not getting as much money. We're driving older cars. We're, you know, we're not Don't getting have school commo stuff, but mm -hmm. we're going to, we're going to do, we're going to knock it out of the park with what we do have. Yeah. You know, and, you know that's, that's worked you know, pretty well recently for the, uh, you know, the Boston Red Sox and the, uh, the, the, Patriots <laughs> taking yeah, yeah. the A minus and B level talent and resources and uh, making champions out of them through fantastic coaching and team play. Right. You know, it's, it's yeah, yeah. no, exactly. And that's, that's the way we thought. And so, so, but we're trying to be better getting out and talking about ourselves. And so, most I had a couple of writers call me while I was chief and just say, "Hey, could I, could I chat with you about some questions?" Just cold called me, and wow. of course they didn't know that they had called another writer, and um, so they kind of lucked out because I was like, "Sure, let's, let's yeah, let me set up a time and let's let's chat." But even though we come across as sort of grouchy Tommy Lee Jones esque, kind of, <laughs> I don't care kind of kind of men and women. Yeah. really we're just people you know we're just, yeah. there is no there is no us and them we're just mm -hmm. just people and so i would encourage folks to just 
you know, go to one of these academies, talk to your, I bet you that most people, if they talk, if they have kids in school, have had a, their kids have had a deputy marshal come and talk to the kids, ask them to get a car. You know, there's ways to, to make contact mm -hmm. and lots of research online. I mean, Marshall service has a, a really good, uh, usmarshals.gov.gov site that has all kinds of videos about the training and the reality. And they must, because there's a, there's a handful of folks that are putting marshals in as uh, deputy marshals. I should, I should point out, we, we sort of by, as a matter of ease, say marshals or he's a marshal, but um, in the world of federal government or federal law enforcement, it's the deputy United States marshals that are doing the, they're, they're the ones we're talking about. U S marshals. I've, one one of my dearest friends is a, a well a couple of my dearest friends are former u.s marshals and present u.s marshals but those are political appointments that are the ceos if you will of the individual districts mm -hmm. they have a gold badge but they change with every presidential administration where the silver badge the deputy u.s marshals are the ones out kicking doors and sort of uh the ones we're talking about the federal agents of the of the game so but um, usually pretty, pretty nice folks. And most of them come from other law enforcement backgrounds or military backgrounds. And it's not a, it's not a strict requirement, but by far. Yeah. Now I've, I've only worked around um, or been on a few homicides. I've never specifically been assigned as a homicide detective. Um, but the, to me, the, the, the burden of those types of very serious investigations um, feels a lot like when we were pursuing very serious felons who are, you know, a real danger to the public. And, and literally, you know, we would, we were concerned about, you know, having to catch these guys in time, right, before they commit their next crime or take their next victim or, or slip past. Um, in your experience with chasing some of the worst of the worst, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to hunt dangerous men in real life and what kind of goes through your mind when you think they've slipped away or they're kind of always one step ahead of you? Yeah, that's a real good question. The burden is exactly as you describe it. I, I have, I, I'd say, had the opportunity, but I've had the experience of, of being a homicide investigator and a lead homicide investigator on different cases and when I was quite young and, and inexperienced. And so the burden wow. of 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 not um you know not really know exactly what not knowing what exactly what to do and relying on senior investigators and texas rangers at the time the texas rangers that's really one of their primary jobs is to come mm -hmm. in assist you know small ignorant law enforcement you know, <laughs> detectives that yes. don't know yeah. that they really aren't up to speed they haven't been mm -hmm. in these small departments and i was in a, a medium-sized department in texas that we had some great training but we didn't you know we didn't have a lot of homicides so that was mm -hmm. that was those were tough for me to deal with yes. that burden and i and i think you made a perfect analogy that when you're when you're trying to get somebody behind bars that you know has the propensity to to hurt again or kill again or even you know swindle elderly people again out of their life mm -hmm. savings and it might not be a, a death kind of a thing but or you but you know, really doing some damage to humanity. Yes. And um, it, it does add a, a certain intensity to the hunt that, you know, to, to make you 
spend a lot of your time. You, mm-hmm. It's one of those jobs where you, where you become the job instead of getting to yes. leave it. You know, you, you say you, you work at a so-and-so, but you don't say I, I work at the marshal's office. You say I'm a deputy U S marshal or I'm a whatever. And yep. so, because you never really shuck off the, the coat, you come home and go to sleep at night and you're thinking, Oh wait, I should have interviewed so-and-so or so-and-so said this, I should go over there. And, and it's really kind of a 24 seven gig that can eat you alive if you're not careful and which makes for really compelling characters because they do get get sort of focused to the detriment of other parts of their lives if we're not careful yeah you know in in my my former life uh before um before the badge i i had a number of different jobs but i've never had an anxiety dream about teaching (laughs) chemistry or an anxiety dream about financial advisement right but um, yeah. you know, there, there is, you know, kind of referred to psychologically as like the universal cop dream, right? Some, some stress anxiety dream about the job that usually has you failing in some way miserably. And the two that, that I have, uh, well had, I haven't had them for a while, but the, the two that I would have or the one where I cannot pull the trigger. I'm in a gunfight. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting shot at, and the trigger won't pull. I cannot get enough force on it. It won't fire. And yeah, yeah. the other one is I'm in a fist fight. And I'm just getting my ass kicked just by this massive Shrek-like behemoth, mm-hmm. and I'm hitting it with everything I've got, and it's like I'm hitting it with cotton balls. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I never had those concerns about, you know, talking to people about life insurance, you know? Yeah, exactly. They just can't get the Pythagorean theorem. You don't worry about that when, <laughs> you're, when you're falling asleep. No, that, you're right. Those are universal cop dreams. I, our, our sons have had them and talked to mm-hmm. me about them or I've had them. They're just that pulling the trigger dream is something mm-hmm. that I have periodically now. Mm-hmm. Even after being retired for six years, it gets ingrained in you. Yeah. Um, feel just unable to to do what you're supposed to do it's pretty agonizing yeah you know and that's i think been one of the one of the tough transitions you know for for me personally coming out of the job is trying to find some kind of balance between you know what i used to do and how i used to run things and now being the guy who should be calling the cops instead of being the cop (laughs) i know but i think i think that's a that's why you were a cop because (laughs) i always I always, when we have a lot of, over the past 30 years, we've had a lot of young couples come over and talk to mm-hmm. my wife and I, whether one, you know, one spouse or the other wanted to be in law enforcement. And I mm-hmm. always, I always started off with, and generally we knew them a little bit. So I would, mm-hmm. I could kind of know whether they looked like they had it in them or not. But I always posed yeah. that if you're in a mall and you hear gunfire and a scream, what's your first instinct? Is it mm-hmm. to crouch down, you know, take care of your family, do your thing, get away. Mm-hmm. Or is it not, and not that it's the right thing to do. I'm talking about not first action, but first instinct yes. is your first instinct to go check it out, to kind of see what's going on and to it's become passe now, but I used to say run towards the sound of gunfire. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the fact that you still struggle with that, I got to call the cops. I'm not the cop shows that you absolutely had that first instinct. And that's what we're looking for is that kind of, of person. Yeah. I think, you know, somebody that's, that's going to 
you know, crouch down or somebody that's going to, you know, go the other way. I mean, it's, those are all, you know, valid choices, valid and rational options, right? It's mm-hmm. irrational to, to put yourself in, in danger when you have a, an avenue of escape, but it's also absolutely necessary in our society for those guardian warriors to exist and be willing to put themselves in jeopardy for people they don't know or can even hate them. Oh yeah, absolutely. I was, I, I have many, many friends because of the protective work we do in the marshal service, mm-hmm. many friends in the secret service and, um, I, and secret service agents and protective, you know, people on the presidential protection detail play a big role in the Clancy books I write mm-hmm. because I, that's a, something I'm familiar with um, more than say nuclear submarines. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's very, it's, it's a, I mean, I knew it, it's not a new thing because I was in protective work as well, but it's a, it's an eye-opening thing when people hear, you know, they always hear about you taking a bullet for the president mm-hmm. and, you know, it's, it's rare that a, a somebody would actually have to like grab a gun and pull it into themselves or something like that. But what they do do as protective agents is make themselves bigger targets. So yes. where a citizen would be taught, run, get out of the way, a, everyday patrol officer, detective, whatever, deputy U.S. marshal, hunting fugitives or whatever would be taught, you know, seek cover and, you know, at least concealment, Mm -hmm. seek cover. But a secret service agent on a protective detail or any kind of protective agent, diplomatic security, U.S. marshal, or deputy U.S. marshal on a judicial protection are all taught, make yourselves a bigger target than the, don't, you're not saying go jump in front of the bullet, but you stand up, you stand up and shoot. So that the shooter, and that, that is irrational. That is a, yes. that's yeah. something you have to really get your mind wrapped around um, if you want to do that kind of a job, which makes for, again, as a, as a writer, that makes for a really compelling character because if you're somebody's wife or husband mm-hmm. and they go to work and you know that they are going to do that, it's hard to say, okay, be safe out there. <laughs> yeah. No, they're not. And yeah. you know, before I go on, I wanted to say something I didn't say to answer your question. One way, and I think probably the best way in this day and age to find out if you're, if you're a writer and you're writing about U.S. Marshals, Phoenix Police, FBI, RCMP, whatever, come to one of the premier um, um, conferences and there are almost like VoucherCon or Thriller Fest or something like mm-hmm. that. And there are almost always a cadre of, of former cops and present day cops that are, are hanging out, just chatting. In fact, there's about, I'd say seven or eight of us that are kind of bandying around the idea of um, starting a little, you know, war room kind of a, mm-hmm. you know, locker room kind of a yeah. place where we maybe rent an extra room and just open the doors to people and all we do, because Honestly, I, I love going to conferences and I meet so many good people and I do go mm-hmm. to panels, but I find myself, even though I have a panel that I'm, you know, planning to attend, I find myself running into Sean Lynch, who, who writes some really good stuff now. And uh, he's writing Westerns now, but he writes thrillers as well and um, former cop in, from California. And we'll run into each other in the hall and talk for three hours, just, yeah. just kind of BSing back and forth in the lobby or talking to somebody from the military that's a friend of mine or Simon Gervais, former RCMP. Or, I mean, I look forward to meeting you and talking to you. And so 
and you know as well as I do that writers like to talk about themselves. Cops like to tell more stories. <laughs> so yeah. people that are interested, my gosh, all you got to do is sit and listen. And we find people that do that a lot. Uh, at yeah. these conferences. Yeah, as as soon as the first story comes out, right, then it's either, oh, that reminds me of a time, yeah. or I've got, <laughs> exactly. I've, got, I've got one better than that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Hold my beer. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, and they usually make us look foolish. The best <laughs> the best stories are the ones where, yes, you know, you look like a goober, because um, that's yeah. reality. Yeah, I, I guess in just total candor, one of my, my favorite, and it's a short story, but one of my favorite things that I did that I was so grateful nobody else was around, right? I, I had been on patrol about, man, six months maybe, mm-hmm. and um, was working in an outline area of our district. Backup was about 20 to 30 minutes away, and we'd had a, a rash of stolen vehicle dumps up in this desert area, right? So I'm out on a traffic stop, middle of nowhere, and I look up, and I see this rise of smoke coming up over the horizon. And so I gave the guy his stuff back. He goes on his way, and I, I started hauling ass north toward the smoke. And, you know, in open areas, um, is, I'm sure you're familiar, but for the benefit of the reader, right, in open areas, distance is deceiving. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was about a mile away from this thing. Like 10 minutes later, I'm still hauling ass <laughs> to, to get up on this plume. <laughs> and when I finally get up there, these guys had stolen and dumped a brand-new Mustang uh, taking it out in a desert wash and then burned it. Right. And so I get out of the car and I'm, you know, my first priority is of course, you know, making sure there's no bad guys around. So I'm, you know, sweeping the area. And then my second priority is trying to keep this fire from spreading in this wash and becoming this big wildfire. So I don't have anything but the little fire extinguisher in my trunk. So I, I get that out. So I've got my pistol in, in one hand, the fire extinguisher <laughs> in the other, and I'm headed up to try to do something. Right while fire's en route, and they'll be there like 15 minutes from now. So the tires start popping on this car. I didn't know it was tires popping. I thought it was gunfire. So I'm talking down and taking cover behind these scrub brushes, yeah. all messed up, and then realize, you know, what I've been listening to. And, uh, you know, looked around, I'm like, man, thank God I don't have a partner today. <laughs> oh, yeah, or somebody shooting YouTube video. Yeah. Yeah, oh, my God. Yeah, we've all done things like that that are, heaven forbid, there's somebody with a with a camera yeah. copying us being – being silly now how uh when when you're writing how do you how do you keep your books especially you know with the specialized knowledge that you have in 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 man tracking how do you keep your books from kind of becoming a prison phd for guys that want to mm-hmm. stay away from the arliss cutters and the, the mark camerons of the world well i talk i i focus more on the people you know i i put in a little uh, there's a couple of disclaimers in my early books, you know, where I don't want to be a training manual for terrorists. And, mm-hmm. um, I, for instance, one of the early, uh, Jericho Quinn books, my dad was a chemistry teacher. And so I oh, got right pretty cool, uh, pretty cool concoctions when I was a kid, <laughs> you yeah. know, that would explode on contact and other things that the statute of limitations has run on. But, <laughs> but, um, yes. but I, uh, you know, if I want to have them do some sort of field expedient bomb or something like that, I certainly don't want some high school kid or junior high school kid reading my book to go, oh, let me try that out at home. So I'll, I'll leave out a little, you know, and, and then he got the rest of the ingredients from the kitchen shelf or, you know, leave out little bits and pieces or, or uh, 
things like that. And it's, it's pretty easy open source nowadays to find everything, even top secret stuff. It, you know, part yeah. of what makes things top secret is where they come from. And so even though I might know something that's quote unquote or classified top secret, um, it's out there all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, which is really weird to somebody that deals yes. in, in classified material all the time and, and kind of icky when you're writing about mm-hmm. it, you feel really terrible, but I, uh, I leave little bits and pieces out, but then more than that, even I, I try to focus on the, the human aspect of things. So if Arliss is, tr- is chasing somebody, um, he's dealing with the, the, the personality quirks of the person and, mm-hmm. and the interview part of things. And, you know, I can, I can touch on something to do with, with cell phone technology or touch on, like for instance, we caught somebody uh, a little bit before I retired using uh, location services on the internet. So if you, mm-hmm. on Facebook, so if you um, put a photo on it on Facebook and there's metadata on that, yes, that uh, photo, but I don't, I don't go into the nitty gritty about it. But it's kind of cool for people to know, oh my gosh, if I put something on Facebook, people can see that. <laughs> Although yeah. they know, they know already because they pull up on their phone and go, oh, I was here watching the cherry blossoms. Oh, look, this photo shows up on a map by the Potomac. Well, don't you think somebody that's looking for you is going to know that? And we, we put so much stuff on social media nowadays yes. that I don't have to hide anything. It's all out there. You know, people, if, if you're run of the mill, you know, Joe bag of donuts that I'm looking for, um, thinks hard then, but, but you know, people, people don't think that way. They really don't. It's, it's the very, I I met very few arch criminals, you know, very few Blofelds or Moriarty in my career. These people are doing what they do. Either they're so good that we never know who they are and they, cause there are people like that. I mean, I know they're Mm -hmm. out there. Yeah. El Chapo's of the world that live in other parts of the and but even he eventually got caught um, yeah, a couple times <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly got caught and then Chapo'd his way out but uh, yeah but most people that we deal with are not you know so big giant brain intelligent that they uh, think about it too much you know yeah, and one of the recurring themes of this podcast is that it only takes about a decade of blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. <laughs> what was your growth and development like as an author, moving your career from inspiration to published author to bestseller? Well, I I wanted to be a writer from the time I was very young, but I also wanted to be a cop, and so I I had the the fortune, if you will, and the to be able to know that I, that I wanted to write while I was carrying the badge. And so mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time taking notes, just watching people and learning about what bad guys are like and what good guys are like. And, you know, really form, you know, formulating some, some plans that ba- basically I, I would say I kind of got mystery suspense thriller writer one one um, as in the academy. So while I'm, yeah. while I'm sitting in a, um, the, the building that I trained in and the marshal service to, that I lived in doesn't even, it's been plowed over and, 
you know, demolished and something new has been built there. But when we were going through the Marshall Service Basic, there was exposed radiator pipes. And mm-hmm. so it's very easy for me to kind of extrapolate from that KGB training. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> when I write some, you know, Cold War type training area, I can look back on my own training in the United States and go, wow, this moldy room that I'm in and mm-hmm. runs. And, you know, they're a little stricter nowadays as far as running in the heat. But our instructor used to go stand over the little temperature gauge in the shade in Georgia so that and make it shaded so that we'd turn from a black flag day to a yellow flag day and mm-hmm. um, so we could go run, <laughs> you know, and, and um, yeah. so it was a it was kind of a a different era and yes. And they're still super hard on them. I mean I've watched some of the stuff they do. I think they've just added a bunch of hard things just to make up for that inability to run in the humidity but uh so i i just look at those sorts of things and said to myself these are you know writers and, and you know this writers are really mollusks we're like yeah. we're like these filters that look at everything going on around us and say oh there's a tidbit that people are gonna like there's a there's a little something that somebody's gonna like there for instance one of my friends in um the South Pacific where my wife and I go every winter and on the Island of Rarotonga, he's from Australia and he's just, his name's Kerry Winterflood. And he's just this, he's like a, he's a cornucopia of cool sayings. And, and, you know, he sounds <laughs> cool anyway, because he's, he's from Australia, yep. but just always something. And I, and I follow the guy around with a notebook and he, and he knows it, you know, and so he's yep. coming up with cool things. But, but uh, he said once um, we were describing some, lady that we had met you know this lady we'd met uh in town and he said she's got more culture than a month old mango and i and i thought (laughs) wow that uh that's a phrase that i'm gonna use someday and i think as writers that's what we do whether i Mm -hmm. see a a particularly bad actor do something during a a fugitive hunt or like we we ended up my partner and i chased this guy one time and, and i I'm embarrassed, but I don't even remember what he did. It was bad enough that we were focused on him very strongly. He was a he wasn't a top fifteen, but he was a dangerous guy. But we found out during the course of our investigation that his girlfriend was a stripper who would fl- everybody told us she would flush red like her face would mm-hmm. flush red, and she would spit and lisp whenever she got upset. And so we should be very careful that she would spit on us when we eventually interviewed her because she was like this lisping, spitting, exotic dancer. And the way people described her was so interesting that we started looking for her. And even yeah. though she wasn't yeah. the fugitive, we, we kind of got in our, our minds that if we find her, we'll find him. And so our whole investigation just subliminally shifted to find this lisping spitter because that sound cooler to us. And we eventually yeah. did through her find him. But after the fact, I looked back and said, my gosh, she's got to go in a book. This is, yes. and she eventually did. She's in uh, one of the, I think the last Jericho book. Now, I, the last, uh, the last few questions I, I ask of, of, of everyone um, that, that, uh, that comes on the show, especially with uh, a, a writing and, and, and cop background but who are your favorite fictional investigators in books, TV, or film? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I really liked, 
um, and I can't remember his name, Arcady, the the investigator in Gorky Park. I like that kind of plot. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I like uh, CJ Box's Joe Pickett, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, because he's real, there, bad stuff happens to him and he can – he can goof up and uh but he's still you know he's uh i like because i know you and i know what it's like i like plotting investigators mm-hmm. that get the job done with um you know i like the old um and then i like the tough guys i like mike hammer i like i like mm-hmm. i liked a lot of um you know spencer and and yeah uh, that you know kind of parker stuff and i i was a big and still am a big john mcdonald john d mcdonald fan um travis mcgee um the kind of the rockford-esque and i'm really dating yeah. myself yep. but the jim rockford i thought Mc, rockford seemed to me like he was taken from a travis mcgee archetype that guy that you know could be a millionaire if he'd ever keep any of the money that he made from these yes yep. downtrodden <laughs> women that he saved you know i mean even the name of his boat was the busted flush but so, so in talking to you, I've kind of winnowed away, and I think Travis McGee's my favorite. Um, so now, God forbid it should happen, Mark, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, who mm. would you want working the homicide investigation, and who gets to chase the accused, keeping that last answer in mind? Mm. Well, the homicide investigation, I'd probably want – oh, boy, that's a, that's a hard one. Like. I mean, anybody literary, like anybody, anybody yep. in well, I'd probably want Holmes working my homicide investigation, but I'd want Tommy Lee Jones, Sam Gerard, Jason <laughs> Killer. There's no doubt. I, you know, I, I used to interview people for um, chiefs jobs and we had a mm-hmm. panel and other chiefs would, they just picked a few of us to go to DC. And when you get kind of on the short list for a job as a chief deputy U.S. marshal, then you have to go before this panel of chiefs. It's a kind of a, um, there's, you know, pretty strict guidelines, what kind of questions sure. you ask and all that. And, but it's, it's grueling. It's, it's a half a day of just questions and answers and questions and answers. And some of it extemporaneous, some of it planned. Mm-hmm. And so you, you end up sweating through the brand new suit you bought. Oh, yeah. yep. peers, you know, and Plus you're on DC time when you're from all over the United States. And so, but I was one of those interviewers and um, I remember interviewing this kid and, and I was sitting next to, you couldn't interview somebody that you knew well, but the marshal service is small. So you do know these people. So I'd, I'd met this guy a couple of times on some different operations. And I remember talking to one of his supervisors and he said, this particular person is not necessarily a boss, you know, because they leave like this trail of broken egos behind them wherever they go in state and local and other agents and other deputies. And they're just like a bull in a, the proverbial China closet. But if my wife and kids were taken, that's the guy I want hunting them down because he is that oh good a, a, yeah. an investigator, that good a hunter. And so I, Really, when I'm if if I had somebody, I'd want that guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because there are certain people that, and and I'm not one of them. I mean, I loved fugitive hunting, and I I think I was pretty dang good at it. 
but there are some people that seem to be born onto this mm -hmm. earth with a God-given talent of just knowing what other people think. And it's, it is nothing short of magical when you're around somebody like this. And, you know, I'll spend two days trying to suss something out of this, you know, link analysis and all the stuff that we use to match people and somebody that really is just gifted at it will come in and go, Oh yeah, we should look over at this place and they're there. So yeah. it's pretty amazing. So that's the person I try to write about to, to have somebody like Arliss, who's, uh, you know, my tracking instructor and my, ju my jujitsu instructor, a guy named Ty Cunningham. We've been friends for 25, 30, almost 30 years now. And, um, He's, he just got his 10th degree black belt in jujitsu. So that's, wow. that's a grand master. Yeah. Um, and he's a heck of a tracker. I mean, but it, but it is mystical. I don't think sometimes, and he would argue this, but I don't think he can teach what he knows. He, he teaches a lot of what he knows and he, mm -hmm. he brings us up to a certain point, but uh, it, it's nothing short of like Dr. Doolittle-ish, the way he goes out and talks to the ground. Um, yeah. And I want to write about that kind of person. Yeah, you can teach reflexes, but you can't teach instinct. You know, yep. it's yep, yep, two yep. different things. Uh, where where can fans connect with you um, and maybe follow a blog or a newsletter or, or keep up on your releases? Yeah, so I'm I'm uh, really terrible at that. <laughs> <I'm>, uh, <laughs> I, I always say that if I tweeted, it would be writing or writing, and that would be pretty much it because I'm either on my bike or in front of the computer. But they can connect with me at um, I have a website, Mark Cameron books. Um, I have a Facebook, um, just Mark Cameron author at Facebook. Um, so, you know, either on Facebook or my website, I, I have a newsletter, but it hardly ever goes out because I'm writing all the time, but I do, I do answer emails. And again, that's just Mark Cameron books at Yahoo. Um, I answer emails. People email me. I never, I really don't ever read my reviews. I love getting reviews. I like to see that I'm getting reviews, but I had a, a very wise young lady in Rarotonga that she's ridden her bike around the world. This is really and a good author herself. And she said, you know, reading your reviews is like eating an egg salad sandwich with glass in it. You know, it, <laughs> it seems good, but then, so but I do enjoy getting emails and I answer them all. Um, and, uh, conferences, I go to either thriller fest or BoucherCon, and sometimes both the year and like to talk to readers there and other writers. Well, I, I genuinely and greatly appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us today, Mark. Hey, thank you so much, Gavin. It's been fun to talk to you. Always good to talk to another copper. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's uh, always a good time, man. You've been listening to writers on the beat where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been retired Deputy Chief U.S. Marshal and international best-selling author Mark Cameron. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.